0: Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads. Season 1, The Adam and Eve Story, The History of Cataclysms by Chan Thomas. This is Chapter 3, The Story. Before I begin, I just want to say that this is an archived PDF on archives.org, and as I'm reading through it, there probably will be a few editing errors that I'll come across. You'll notice them. Okay, let's get started. Chapter three, the story, enigma, pursuit, unraveling. It's funny how some things can plague you from childhood through your adult years. Not big things, but little things, which don't exactly persist, but annoyingly stick their head through your life story and say, "boo," just to let you know they're still there. If I made a list of all these things in my life, it might take up a whole book. I'd like to talk about just one of those bugaboos. For me, the first time I heard the story of the creation of Adam and Eve, it buzzed me, as my young son would say. Now, to me, the answer was not simply one of the two alternatives, either unquestioning faith in the story as it stands or complete repudiation as utter nonsense. No, the answer seemed to lie elsewhere. The story we were taught as a truth so uniformly, in spite of its apparent divergence from scientific truths, then to me, the true course would seem to be a search for the foundation of the story, which would then lead to a true reading of it. The pursuit happened almost by accident. Years of data, correlation, and studying the earth-tumbling concept has shown the last tumble to have occurred about 6,500 years ago. That Noah, or Ut-Nap-Histim, or whatever his name was, did exist and did survive that particular cataclysm. A friend of mine suggested that genesis 1 is almost a perfect description of conditions of our planet right after a cataclysm including about a five week following on rereading it i had to agree genesis 2 even mentions that a mist proper translation in donation arose from the earth and watered the whole face to the ground well now this was worth thinking about if it were so then it would be the cataclysm preceding noah's another fascinating story about 11,500 years ago. This then would be approximately the time of the Adam and Eve story. The pursuit started. The story, if the story did originate with that cataclysm, in what language was it first written? Certainly not Hebrew or Greek, for as far as we know, that didn't even exist at that time. Was it possible to delve into the vanished pages of prehistory and find both the language and the story as originally written? If we look to such men, such as Don Antonio Betres Giroquí and James Churchward, we may have our answer. Certainly, their knowledge of prehistoric languages could be a key, and later we'll discuss the role of Naga and the ancient Mayan in the story of Adam and Eve. First, however, let's examine the history of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There are many schools of thoughts on this subject. The predominant one is that Moses was the originator. This seems not since Moses was reared in the Egyptian tradition, in a royal household. He probably had access to many religious writings and teachings now lost with the passing of the archives in Egypt and Alexandria, Heliopolis, and Says. Certainly, the Ten Commandments were the condensation of the 42 questions of Osiris for entering heaven. If Moses did write part of the Old Testament, he then must have had Nagai tablet writings, or Egyptian interpretations of them handed down to the Egyptians for thousands of years through the royal households, and the Egyptian priesthood had knowledge of a cataclysm 11,500 years ago from our time. Priests of Egypt are supposed to have told Solon during his 10 years in Egypt, about 600 BC, that 9,000 years before that time there was a cataclysm which buried Atlantis beneath the ocean. Note that 9,000 plus 600 B.C. plus 1950 A.D. equals 11,550 years ago. Moses' brother Aaron became the first chief and the priests of the Hebrews about 1,300 B.C. Somewhere between 15 and 18 generations later, the chief priesthood, having been handed down from father to son through the generations, Sarai, or Sarai's, was the chief priest. See Ezra, and then one and two. Later, in 586 B.C., in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, seri I'm going to actually spell it because I don't know how to pronounce it, S-E-R-A-I-A-H, was executed, and his son, Ezra, made a captive in Persia. Jerusalem was sacked, and all the Hebrew laws and records of the Old Testament were burned with the temple at Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar's captain of the guard. In 458 BC, the seventh year of Atrax- Atraxerxes' reign, Persia, Ezra was commissioned to reestablish the Hebrew religion and law. According to two Edras, we rewrote the history of the Hebrews the, from the beginning and reestablished their laws. Now, from 586 to 458 BC is 128 years. The latest that Ezra could have been born was after his father Sarah's execution, as well could be, see Onan's story, Genesis 38, 8 through 10. Therefore, the youngest he could have been in 4, 5, 8 BC was 127. He was working on a long memory. Let's examine this anomaly. As mentioned before, the lineage from Aaron to Ezra contains 17 to 20 generations, including Aaron and Ezra, assuming one. 1,300 B.C. to be the start of Aaron's priesthood 1,290 B.C. is adjudged to be the time of the exodus 2, 458 B.C. to be near the end of Ezra's priesthood Then we find the average priesthood term to be per generation to be between 42.1 and 49.5 years In view of this, can we believe that Ezra served his priesthood for approximately 130 years? Which includes his entire lifespan? It would appear much more plausible to assume that it was Ezra's grandfather, Azariah, rather than his father, Sarah, who was the one taken and executed by Nebuchadnezzar's men in 586 BC. Then, Sarah and Ezra would have served as chief priests from 586 to 458 BC for an average of 64 years apiece. It is even plausible that Ezra's great-grandfather Helkiah could have been the victim in 586 B.C., leaving Azariah, Zerah, and Ezra to serve the 128 years for an average of 42 years each, which is even close to their overall average from Aaron to Ezra over a period of about 845 years. This means that the Adam and Eve story was last seen in writing by Helkiah, or Azariah, Therefore, handed down verbally, possibly, by Azariah, and certainly by Sarah and Ezra, and finally dictated by Ezra to five scribes. It is the five scribes' writings that we have today as Ezra's work, and the English is not even a literal translation. For instance, without form, and void, more literally would read, Raging Inundations and Horrendous Winds. Now, through Ezra's reconstructions of Genesis, I'm told many things. 1. Because of the usage of tree, fruit, serpent, cherubim, in other words, which were glyphs in the picture language of prehistory, it is evident that the creation of Adam and Eve stories were probably originally written in the glyphs of the Naga, the predominant Eastern Hemisphere language of 11,500 years ago. This language is nearly identical to ancient Mayan and the progenitor of many languages, including Oriental and the Polynesian tongues, Egypt, Egyptian, Greek, and Yakut. My own knowledge of prehistoric naga and Mayan glyphs enables me to read many Indian blankets of the southwestern United States, which have woven into them colorful glyphs depicting a cataclysm. I wonder if the Indians are chuckling to themselves knowing that the tourists think they are buying blankets of just pretty pictures. Yakut is an interesting language. It is a most pure-spoken naga. It is spoken by the Alaskan Eskimos. The town of Yakutat means the place where Yakut is spoken. It is also spoken by a native tribe in Turkey. Naga is almost pure Naga, and almost its purest prehistoric form is spoken by a tribe in northern India. It is pure prehistoric Mayan. Two, Moses certainly, and possibly Aaron had access to the royal Egyptian glyph stones library. Three, neither Moses nor Aaron knew how to read the ancient glyph languages of Naga or Mayan, therefore read the glyphs quite literally. 4. Not being able to read the symbolisms of the glyphs, in addition to reading them literally, Moses and Aaron, possibly Ezra, read into the Adam and Eve story the social and religious attitudes of their day. In that time, a woman was regarded as the root of all sin, a lowly creature, her birth recorded only as an exception, and basically being the cause of every man's downfall, a daily potential. This attitude persists even in worse forms in some religious amazingly in our time. Is it any wonder that Eve was shouldered with the responsibility for the downfall of all mankind as a result of interpretations read into the Nagam by Moses and into Moses' reading by Ezra? Perhaps also it was read into the story by Egyptian priests long before Moses' time passed on to him as history. If his father were really the one taken and executed by the captain of the guard, Nebaza Aden, then it had to be his grandfather who passed the story to him verbally. The fusing of the two stories into make the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 may confuse the man with Adam. The man is in quotes. It is possible that Adam being only nine generations ahead of Noah, with the time span of the Sudan Basin Polar Era covering about 4,500 to 5,000 4, 5, years ago, was not the man referred to in the creation, but his name, and experiences were worked with the man's story. Again, the man's is in quotes. Remember, however, we are informed that Ezra dictated the entire history of the five scribes from memory, and his work contains Genesis as we know it today. For him to recall the archives of his mind that he did, as well as he did, certainly bespeaks of inspiration of a higher order. But it also appears evident that he had no knowledge of the fact that 5,000 years transpired between Genesis 1 and Noah's flood. It is clear from 2 Ezra's 3.9 that Genesis 1 and Noah's flood represents two inundations. However, for while speaking of the two occasions, he says of Noah's flood, And again in the process of time, thou broughtest the flood upon those that dwelt in the world and destroyed them. Now we mentioned before the lineage of the high priests from Aaron to Ezra differs in numbers of generations, 17 or 20, and names as presented in 1 and 2 Esdras are both different in names from the book of Ezra. We also find differences in the languages from Noah to Jesus approximately 51 generations, in the Bible. Is it any wonder, therefore, that some generations could have been omitted in the Adam and Eve line, not to mention that Noah to Jesus line, and the Aaron to Ezra line? And in light of the fact that in addition to overwhelming evidence, there are countless legends of the Asian Pacific areas handed down from the inundation of 11,500 years ago of a creation much like that of Genesis 1 and 2 is it not possible that the man, quote-unquote, of the Genesis story became confused with Adam throughout the thousands of years and through our succeeding cataclysms in Noah's time 7,000 years ago? The miracle is that the whole story of creation and of Adam of Ease is as undistorted as it is. Being 11,500 years old, it has suffered through many debacles visited upon its guardians in the intervening years. Before the lack of resolving information, Quote, the man and Adam are kept as one in this translation interpretation. The significant Nagoglyphs given to us by Ezra through Moses direct reading are cherubim's rib, Adam's sleep, man, woman, tree, fruit on the tree, serpent, and flaming sword. Our knowledge of naga glyphs tell us that the tree of life symbolized a mother continent, a parent civilization lasting thousands of years longer than ours of today. An unadorned serpent represented water in its natural state, or the ocean. A serpent entwined around the tree signified that the Mother Continent was surrounded entirely by water. Genesis 3.15 actually describes Eve's heel on the serpent's head, depicting her victory over the oceans. Cherubims, which were not pretty, plump babies, as we have always thought, but glyphs of hybrid man and beast. There were the glyphs for legs, or foundations, or underpinnings. Instead of being placed in the Garden of Eden, the foundation was taken away. And a or Mayan reading of the Egyptian Book of the Dead shows that cherubims of the north, south, east, and west were taken away, meaning that all the foundations of the mother continent were removed and destroyed. The flaming sword was a symbol of fire and earthquake. The fire signified what all legends of these cataclysms call earth fire, which is the planet-wide molten layer below the earth's 60-mile thick shell breaking through to the surface during a cataclysm, a literal hell. It is, as far as I have been able to determine, the origin of man's concept of hell. I remember watching John Kennedy's funeral on television, and most vividly the incantation given by the archbishops to keep John Kennedy from the doors of hell. His words went back to pre-Christian Rome for describing those gates of hell, he painted a picture of hell exactly like that of the molten sublayer breaking through the earth's shell. It had to be handed down through thousands of years from one who had actually seen it. Chills ran up and down my spine as it stamped an indelible impression on my mind. Now to the tree. Fruit growing on the tree symbolized the mankind which settled the mother continent ages before Adam and Eve. Their eating the fruit tells us why they descended from this original mankind. Eve eating first signifies that she was the younger generation, Adam eating second signifies that he was her father, which made her his daughter. His daughter? Yes, it is the origin of one of the oldest Hebrew laws and a catastrophe if but a male and female survive. They must mate, regardless of their relationship. If you want to check on this, read the story of Lot and his two daughters. The daughters were simply obeying Hebrew law. He is stated to be too drunk to know what he was doing. If he were, he couldn't have performed. He must have been a good actor. The glyph of the creation is even more revealing. There are three figures represented on the stone. The top figure is the face of a sleeping or dead person. There were no separate symbols for death and sleep in Naga. Both were represented as the same. The middle figure is shown as male, and the bottom figure, a female, who is represented as the mother of all mankind. In addition, there are curved lines from the sleeping or dead person in the male middle figure to the bottom of the female figure. This glyph has been interpreted to mean that the middle male figure, a male who is put to sleep, shown by the top figure, and a rib, or ribs, removed from Hib, the ribs being the curved lines, and fashioned into the bottom figure, the female mother of all mankind. This fits beautifully with the story of Eve's creation, Adam therefore being both the male middle figure and the top figure a sleeping or dead person. There is a hitch to the story, however. The top figure, either sleeping or dead, is depicted as female. How could it be, Adam asleep, awake, dead, or alive? Moreover, in Naga, the curved lines denote parentage rather than ribs. So more reasonably, it appears that the top figure is a dead female whose offspring by the middle figure, Adam, was the bottom female figure, Eve, the mother of all mankind. I have been asked countless times how one can tell the top figure to be a dead female, to the extent that I guess I owe an answer here. In Naga, the prehistoric Mayan, they show that the worship but one deity, and represented that deity by a glyph of a circle representing the sun. And any time a circle was shown on a tablet, it could only represent their deity. This tablet has two circles on it. Purists have stated that the writers of this tablet meant to show double intensity of the deity. Strange I have never seen anywhere a double intensity of two circles in either Naga or prehistoric Maya. The curious thing about these two circles is that they are located precisely where a female's breast should be on top of the figure, on the top figure. Maybe that's what double intensity is all about. The most curious thing about this stone is that it fits the legend of Adam being a widower and the name of his deceased wife being Lilith. If true, it would also reveal Lilith to be Eve's mother. So in essence, the story as read from the glyphs would be that Adam and Eve, who lived in the Garden of Eden on the mother continent tree, were descended from the original mankind, fruit, of that land which, incidentally, was surrounded entirely by water, a serpent entwined around the tree. Eve was Adam's daughter, and he was a widower. They realized that in order to survive, they had to leave and never try to return, for the motherland was destined to be destroyed by a cataclysm inundation. Eve had perceived this coming event, and Adam asked her how she had discovered it. She answered that she had inherited the intelligence to do so from her ancestors. As a result, she had gained victory over the inundation, Eve's heel on the serpent's head. They left the motherland, and afterward, the continent tree was subjected to a fiery earthquake, flaming sword, during which it lost its foundation, cherubims, and sank beneath the ocean, serpent, which remained forever afterward, bearing the continent, forward, forever afterward, calling on its belly. So let's review the event two cataclysms ago, and then apply our knowledge toward representative translation and interpretation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It may be the most accurate reading of a story written 11,500 years ago. And that's the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4 will be coming out shortly. Buckle up, guys. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.